Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and we are going to cover the big stories of Thanksgiving week, November 2021. In a sense, Thanksgiving was the biggest story of the week. If you can give thanks on this year, then you have a big story on your hands. Well, I'm very thankful and grateful. You know, it, it's interesting in all seriousness, which is terrible to start out seriously, but um, before the pandemic broke, I was doing a thing on Facebook where uh, someone had sent me uh, 10 Stoic principles and uh, Christianity from a philosophical standpoint and Stoicism, I think, are very, very similar uh, in attitude and the attitude that they encourage people to take. And one of the 10 principles was be grateful for your blessings. And it sounds like when things are going great, it's really important to count your blessings. Uh, but I think it's when things are not going great that it really is most important to count your blessings. And uh, it, it, I don't know. It always makes me feel better when I when I try. You know, sometimes we're a little bit too upset to uh, to think rationally and and sit down in the middle of some crisis and start counting our blessings. But there's no doubt that we'd be probably uh, better off if we did. And um, and it's it's interesting this Thanksgiving. I've heard several people uh, mention that finally we have a Thanksgiving where we can get together. And of course. Um, seems like everyone in my family, my brothers and sisters and their families and so on, has been traveling so much that we didn't get together this year uh, for the most part. And But last year, uh, not all of us, but a lot of us did get together. And, and it was kind of funny, too, because um, many people were worried about traveling. I went to Kansas City and, uh, and you know, traveling back and forth. And would I get COVID? And bring it to everyone. And of course I didn't, but then someone brought COVID soon after I returned. Um, COVID was, was presented to me as a present um, from someone. And, uh, and, you know, that's kind of the way viruses work. And, and so, you know, after, after taking supposedly risky behavior, it was, you know, being careful all the time that, that seemed to catch me very mild case, but anyway, I won't, I won't go into all my medical history. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be sure and provide a link though. <laughs> now, one of the other things I like about Stoicism is the opposite of gratitude. And that's the memento mori. I believe it was Emperor Marcus Aurelius, you know, who began his meditations, meditations with several pages of uh, who he owed everything he has to. It was all about gratitude from the beginning of the meditations. Yes. But one of the things he had done when he was, you know, marching, you know, rolling through the streets of Rome triumphantly being, you know, praised by everybody and, you know, everybody's shouting hosannas to their God. Uh, he would have a servant whisper in his ear, you too shall die. And, uh, and <laughs> that's the part of stoicism. Most people actually remember. And that's why they, you know, so he's a very stoic person. Uh, and, you know, stoicism isn't about being dour. And that's something I think we've all occasionally been, misjudging stoicism as a philosophy but it's that perspective is that twin perspective uh and one of them is gratitude and another is realizing that uh we don't have a lock you know when you're at the top you're not gonna be at the top forever and it's I, basic I, humility basic and and you know in the in the bible and stuff people were talking about pride as a negative thing and in this day and age, it's almost like we're encouraging people to have more pride and, and thought about uh, in the right way, of course, you know, you should take pride in things and in trying to do good. And I mean, there's all kinds of reasons to take pride in that. But it was often a negative because people were proudful and boastful and conceited. And, and so it really is, it's humility. Um, and that's, you know, it, it's, it's a good thing to get because some of us, I, I could be speaking about myself, don't, like I always tell my kids, you know, the problem is, you know, we get humble and then good things happen. And then we get full of ourselves and cocky in no time flat. 
And that's the, it's kind of the nature of people that we're, you know, we, we sometimes our, our best successes are after our worst falls because we're more cognizant and more careful. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, we think we know it all when we have a little bit of success. And I think it was Lincoln who said, you know, if you want to test a man, give him success. One of the interesting things about pride that I've always I've long been thinking about is that we use pride as the opposite of two different things. And people get confused about what, what pride they're dealing with. And one is shame, pride versus shame. And the other is pride versus humility. And that's an interesting, is, is that one, is that one uh, dimension or is there two dimensions here working? And maybe we should think more carefully about what we're talking about when we talk about pride, because you shouldn't be ashamed, ashamed if you've done something shameful. Some people, and I think what many people who talk about pride today are worried about people who uh, are taught to be ashamed just for being who they are, right? And, and or being a member right. of a class or a right. group or whatever. And that's right. what they're just obsessed about. Now, as soon as you become an individual and stop worrying about how others classify you, that kind of shame is just not an issue. And I think one of the differences in our left-right dichotomy right now is the left is obsessed with the kind of shame brought on by conceptions of status. And individualists who may be on the right or somewhere else on the spectrum look at this as very bizarre because I'm not at all concerned about what you think my category is. I, I'd be more concerned about what you think I've done that's meritorious or not. And that I think is a huge issue. And I don't think people really think about it very clearly. And much of the discussions of pride get bogged down as are we talking about the opposite of shame or the opposite of humility? And maybe we should think carefully about that. That's a good point. I think that's exactly right. That it's, it's we're talking about two different uh, uh, definitions, really. And they may be linked, but we should actually inquire as to how they link. And that's one of the things that I'm very interested about virtue ethics in philosophy. But every time I read modern philosophy, I never get anything very interesting about actual practical virtues and, and inevitable vices. They don't seem to be interested in the actual vices and virtues. They seem to be interested in the theory of vices and virtues, which I, I find fascinating. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's just that if you can't supply good accounts of what vices and virtues are, then your theory about virtue seems to be somewhat lackluster. Yes. And I just have to confess that I have almost completely ended any reading into philosophy uh, uh, because of that. No, I don't know if it's because of that, but it's uh, because I don't have any time to read it. I'm just, I'm, I'm. Uh, well, you're busy I'm, writing, uh, writing essays that appear one day a week at thisiscommonsense.org. And that's what we usually talk about, at least one of them at length. And is there one that stands out to you this week? Actually, I'm, I, I want to make a little uh, dive through them all uh, uh, but, but we're going to, we're going to focus more on the, well, let's, let's call it totalitarianism. And, and to start off, uh, every day as, as Tim puts these together and, and sometimes I make suggestions and, and, but we have every day, a thought of the day, somebody's famous comment, uh, wise comment, not so wise comment. And Hannah Arendt, who spoke a lot about totalitarianism post-World War II, um, says only the mob and the elite can be attracted by the momentum of totalitarianism itself. The masses have to be won by propaganda. And what she's saying here, and this is after looking at the rise of totalitarianism in the last century, I submit to you that it is back. Um, and uh, especially in the, in the more polished Chinese version um, and uh, less so in the less polished Russian version, um, but also in the American version in the sense that so many of our elites buy into a totalitarian mindset, the idea that government should do everything, that no problem anywhere can be allowed to be a problem while people individually, privately figure out how to solve it for themselves, that constantly the state must be the decider of everything. And even if that's done in a democratic fashion, which of course the reality is 
these sorts of micro tyrannical decisions aren't made democratically. You can't vote 16 times a day. And what you end up with is zero democracy, of course. But it's, it's interesting to me that um, I, I kind of got interested in politics in a more hypersensitive way after reading 1984 in, in school. And the idea of government at that level, which of course had, has been, it wasn't like, you know, 1984 is a dystopian futuristic novel but it's, it's almost passe these days. It's, it's um, you know, what Ed, Edward Snowden told us was happening, um, you know, is, is 1984 plus some. So it's, it's interesting to me the way that you might think, well, you know, who, who's behind Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping and Pol Pod, and you know, you can you can name quite a few different people who believe government should completely remake everything. Um, well, it's not the little guy, it's not the working stiffs, it's the intelligentsia, it's the folks who believe that we're so brilliant that we can decide everything. That science, if we just follow the science. And then, of course, in no time at all, they've got to stop people who disagree about the science from speaking because it's all about the science. And there you go down the path in which you have an elite that enforces everything, including the science. And we see that happening in Australia and New Zealand and Europe and the United States. Um, I've joked before, and it's only half a joke if that, that the United States of America is the richest, freest, totalitarian society in the history of the world. And what I mean by that, I think you know what I mean by rich and, and free to the extent we are on both of those, because <laughs> uh, when stuff hits the fan, we may find that we're not quite as rich as we thought we were. Um, but, uh, but as much as that's true, What's also true is that again and again, higher education, academia, the fourth estate, the media, the press, uh, in Hollywood, in government, in the deep state, the thinking is totalitarian, is that they make all the decisions and that they will decide for mankind and they will decide what we're really capable of knowing or not knowing or even hearing about. And, and that's, I think that's where we find ourselves. And so I, I look at Hannah Arendt's uh, words here and her, her basically illuminating the fact that it's, it's the connection between this, the mob on the street, not the average person, but the mob and the elite that has embraced totalitarianism that can that can bear to think that you know this is the way society would be run and can relish that thought and so um this week we go into the various common sense scripts and of course on monday we talked about lynch mob at 11 the whole aftermath of the kyle rittenhouse case where um you know i think a, a lot of us our basic thought, which had been kind of repeatedly thrown at us from the media was, what's this kid doing there? What's this kid doing with a gun, um, you know, in, in uh, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin? You know, he crossed state lines, which a lot was made of that. Of course, it's not a crime to, to cross state lines. I, I do it all the time. Uh, perfectly fine thing to do. And, and But we had gotten a whole, a whole kind of liturgy uh, around this this 17 year old now 18 year old and then of course the facts of the trial come out and it's something totally different and why were we led to believe that this is kind of a white supremacist wannabe kid who went looking for trouble when it turns out that he didn't seem to really be going be looking for trouble 
that he was attacked. I mean, it, and, and you can read the commentary. It's uh, lynch mob at 11. Uh, it was on Monday, the 22nd of November. And, and just looking at the aftermath of that case and the degree to which the media ran off with their own narrative that just didn't jive with the facts. And, you know, we can kind of give media a hard time about their narrative. And if you have a narrative, it's a problem because you're trying to fit every, you're trying to fit the news into your narrative. But I guess you could have a narrative and try to fit the news into it and still be honest about it. Like, oh, maybe we better not cover that at all because unless we lie, it's not gonna fit our narrative. And uh, but but be honest, that's not the, the path the media took. Instead, they just made up stuff about it. And and of course, they did fail to tell us a lot. I didn't know until very, very late as the trial had begun that, you know, the, the, the people who had attacked him, that he then retaliated with his, you know, weapon, his rifle, uh, killed two, injured one. Uh, but they, they had long rap sheets, criminal records, serious crimes, including child rape. Um, you know, and, and of course, that didn't get into the trial, didn't need to get into the trial. It shouldn't have gotten into the trial. But we as American citizens are allowed to know the full story. We're not deciding somebody's guilt and innocent on all the different technical things. We don't have to be sequestered. Why did the media not tell us that? I guarantee you. If Kyle Rittenhouse had committed child rape previously, we would have known that fact, even though it might not have been allowed into the case. So, you know, again, it's, you know, I'm not telling most people anything they don't know, but um, why is this, why is this kind of sent some shockwaves? Because the American people were deeply lied to by the media and regularly are. Well, that's obviously true. And I don't disagree with anything you said. This is one of those rare cases where I don't disagree with anything you said. Though, oh, I should mention, uh, you meant jibe when you said jive. But aside from that, that's fine. Ah, uh, thank you, sir. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a big a deal. Uh, Someone's got to pick those up, though. Otherwise, you know, the thing is, is that when I talk, you know, when I talk extemporaneously, I'm making these errors all the time. It's really quite a, and it's interesting to listen to and watch, uh, you know, podcasts that we're, you know, competing with out there. And nearly every major figure misspeaks every podcast. It's an astounding thing. It, uh, it, it is funny how easy it is to misspeak. And if you get it all nervous, how easy it is then to misspeak. And I always think about my wife and I love to watch Jeopardy every night and, uh, and, I just know if I were on Jeopardy that like, you know, the answer could be George Washington and I would somehow mispronounce Washington that one time, you know, Washington, I mean, ton. And they go, beep, you know, and the next guy would get it. I'm, what am I doing? Cause it's just, it's so easy to make a mistake. Like that's put an S on someone's name or, or just barely mispronounce it. And, uh, well, I have it all just, the time, even on the major news networks that that happens all the time. Though I am kind of in awe of the professionals in these regards. Um, I find it easier to make corrections on paper than it is to make corrections as I go. Have you never noticed that? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, speaking of corrections, San Francisco has led the way and our Tuesday piece was Frisco findings. Uh, and I just surmised that, look, they couldn't be allowing people to just walk into stores in San Francisco and throughout the state of California and steal stuff and walk out and get away with it. Come on, get real. And, uh, and so I figured they've got to be running some kind of experiment to just see, you know, would it be better for everybody if we just didn't criminalize these small scale, you know, robberies, lootings, whatever. And um, well, it turns out that even the mayor of San Francisco came out and said, we have to, we have to clamp down on this. And her reasoning, and this is Frisco findings, I encourage you to read the piece, there's links to it so you can see her say it in, uh, in living color. But she basically makes the point that it's not just that they're stealing 
money from these businesses and merchandise and hurting the businesses if they hurt these businesses. Now, you might not, I guess if you're the mayor of San Francisco, might not care anything about that, but it means people might lose their jobs. And that, you know, we don't care that the business gets destroyed. That's, oh, who gives a hoot? But the jobs could get lost. And, and of course, some people, I mean, who cares if somebody else's job gets lost? But if the jobs get lost, then there's nothing to tax. And taxes could go down. So they kind of thought maybe this makes sense. Let people rob, just rip stuff off the rack, run out of the store, push little old ladies down as they're grabbing their loot and running out. But it doesn't quite work because sure, hurts the business, no big deal there. Throws people out of work maybe, well, you can't win them all. Um, But reduces taxes. And it means that social programs and and ways to help these looters are are not going to be there. And that's unfathomable. So anyway, go read for yourself. But in San Francisco, they have begun to turn the corner after some deep research into whether it works out better to just let people steal. Apparently, no. It's worth mentioning, I think, that uh, what Democrats have managed to do in these various cities that have done this, and San Francisco is the most extreme, uh, but what they've managed to do is do the very opposite of became the policy in New York City in the 90s that turned New York around in part. I mean, it was the broken window effect, I think they called it, wherein if you allow people to you know, have dirty streets and keep the public facades of their building, you know, dirty and unkempt and broken windows and unhinged doors. And if, if all the little things are allowed to lapse that are infractions of some rule, then the theory was that worse crimes would rise as well. And so they cracked down in New York and elsewhere on little things. Uh, just making people, you know, not litter so much or not doing whatever, you know, little, you know, pickpockets, that kind of thing. Get rid of that kind of element or fight them as much as possible, put it underground rather than above board. Was it a dramatic decrease in crime? And it seemed to coincide with that policy. But all I'm saying is, is that the San Francisco experiment was the very opposite. Let's see how far you can go the other direction. And I think yes. we've, that's been a rousing success in terms of experiment and many extreme demonstration that the uh, broken uh, window effect is has some merit to it yes and and uh, new york city one of the things and this was giuliani's claim to fame because he came in and and supposedly cleaned up new york and and today i think a lot of people would say well part of that was stop and frisk but it was much more than just stop and frisk, which I oppose. You're not allowed to stop people unless you have probable cause that they've committed a crime. So if you do, well, then stop and frisk. Um, but if you don't have probable cause and you stop and frisk, that's called harassment and, and is a civil rights violation. And, and the truth is, you know, some people are, well, you've got to choose one or the other. There's no real problem here. You can police effectively without destroying people's rights. One of the things that they did in New York City, and I can remember I I used to go to New York City quite a lot. Um, uh, Don't go quite as much these days, but uh, but uh, especially through the pandemic, that's that's been a comfort. Um, But you used to have the squeegee guys, the guys who would come up and squeegee your window to, you know, and then they want you to give them some money and so on. And at first, I think it was kind of like, well, is that, you know, they're doing something, they're not just begging on the side of the road, they're squeegeeing and doing a service, and then you give them a couple bucks or whatever. Well, over time, you know, then you got people who are, who are staking out the certain place to squeegee, and you have fights, and then you have people who, you know, what, that's all you're going to give me, and it just became a hassle. It just became one of those things that people couldn't control. You know, they come to a stoplight and there's a bunch of people on their car. And it's just, you know, and I don't think it was that people are just not nice and happy and want to be friendly with everybody. It just went too far. And Giuliani stopped that. Boom. 
just said, we're not going to have it anymore. And you will be arrested if you go squeegee someone's car who didn't ask you to squeegee their car. And it stopped. And people realized, oh, wow. You can actually say, no, we're not doing that anymore. You're not, you're, you're, you're upsetting people. They don't like it. Stop. And they, and people had to stop. And that's, you know, that's get tough, conservative. That's not get tough, conservative. That's just common sense. Come on, people. We're, you know, like that's some kind of some right wing lunatic. It's called stop bothering people. There's every culture has some way to say stop bothering people and some way to enforce it or it doesn't last as a culture. So anyway, it, it is interesting. Um, we have we have kind of gone the other direction. And one of the things I hate about all that is that we we have a tremendous consensus for major criminal justice reforms. And it seems to have all gotten convoluted into, you know, we, we want to focus on letting people out of prison who maybe committed, you know, during the pandemic, they wanted to let people out who had committed, you know, multiple murders and stuff. And it's like, well, wait a second, wait a second. You know, I know this is a terrible virus, but these guys could be more dangerous out there on the streets. And, and yet, you know, if you don't see the difference between the guy who's accused of having sold a tiny amount of marijuana and the guy who's killed seven people, you know, that's maybe part of our criminal justice problems. But anyway, it's, it's, we've decided to have a kind of a race fight instead in large part as a society. You and I didn't decide it, we decided the opposite. But, but anyway, that's, that's very frustrating. And, and let's just thank goodness that at some point, San Francisco, which is a beautiful, beautiful city, uh, the people there ha have had enough and the elected officials are gonna have to do something. Although it's somewhat funny that the mayor, one of the first things the mayor suggested that she was going to do is she wanted to let everyone know it's gonna be harder to get in and out of downtown. They're going to try to screw up the traffic some around Union Square in San Francisco with the idea being, Tim, this is a great, I hope, I hope we get a picture of you looking like that, Tim. Oh, Tim was looking it. like, what the, she is, she is, basically they're going to do some things to mess up the traffic flow so that it's harder to come into Union Square and harder to leave. Now, San Francisco, trust me, is already, the traffic is snarled enough without any extra effort on the part of city authorities. But their idea is we're going to stop people from coming into Union Square, robbing stuff, and getting away too quickly. And the way we're, I mean, we could, of course, arrest them when they steal, the, when they grab all the stuff and they're carrying all the stuff, you know, out of the, we could just arrest them, but why? Why not have a, like a chase through traffic, which will be a very short chase because they're just sitting there at the, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the gridlock. And uh, anyway, this is, uh, you know, look, you got to walk before you run. They've realized that just letting people steal whatever they want doesn't work. I'm sure they're going to figure out sooner or later that there's a better method to, to you know, uh, arrest and prosecute thieves and crooks than just to snarl traffic even further. So, so have faith there. As I said at the end of that uh, commentary, courage. Let's mention something that we did, and I thank you for doing a lot of the, uh, the scholarship on it, but William Bradford, who was the governor of the Plymouth colony, wrote a diary and, and captured a lot of what happened around what we think of today as Thanksgiving. And, uh, and of course, it didn't happen exactly like the, you know, the pictures and the, and the uh, you know, maybe we learned in school uh, or you hear on TV. But uh, several years ago, we had, we had done a, a look at that. And one of the things that's clear is that they had a lot of trouble when they had property assigned as communal public property and everybody kind of feast or famine uh, 
according to what everybody did. And of course, you've seen the same thing centuries later in the Soviet Union and other places where, uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, that after much starvation, they allowed, I think, 3% of the land to be privately worked. And it soon turned out that that 3% was providing about 20% of the food in the country. Um, but the same thing happened uh, with the pilgrims in that once they were able to basically own their own property and work it, there was abundance instead of starvation. And uh, it's, a, it's a longer than usual commentary because we quote directly from uh, William Bradford. And of course, it's kind of the old English. It wasn't, I guess, old English, but, uh, you know, a, a uh, archaic form of English. But anybody reading it, um, you know, you just kind of read through it. It all kind of washes over the mind. and It's very easy to understand what he's talking about. Um, but it's, it's important in the sense that, um, you know, there's a lot of things that, that we didn't get right. Um, there's a lot of trial and error in this world. But one of the things we found is that <clears throat> when you have a stake in the success of a project and you have control over your own success, you tend to be a lot more actively, smartly, wisely, uh, exhaustively concerned in making that thing happen. And uh, it's, it's the, uh, you know, it's the golden goose. Incentives mean everything. And um, it's why in a real free market where you have freedom to, to do stuff, people are more than willing to go do stuff and invest. And in a society in which you don't have that, um, they're stagnant. And you can have all kinds of wealth. Um, so many of the uh, of the uh, oil rich countries in the world, where people's lives are miserable because they've got no, you know, they're not actively engaged in anything, and they're kind of bought off as is, you know, kind of with oil welfare in their country. But uh, I mean, that's the way Iraq has been for for a long time. And and anyway, the, I think it's uh, it's something that people will enjoy if they read. It's called a fitter course. A fitter course, uh, and that's a term that that uh, Bradford used. And um, anyway, I think I think folks will enjoy it. And that was our Thanksgiving piece. Well, there's two other pieces this week. We'll take them in in order. On Wednesday, we had China double faults, uh, and then on on Friday, we had somebody to squelch, and they're connected in in this way. We live in a totalitarian world and it's really sickening and recognizing it is, I think, the first step to fixing it. And some of us have recognized it for a long time, but it doesn't hurt us to remember again. Yes, it's there and to alert other people. And sometimes it has to hit you a couple different ways before you see exactly what somebody's talking about in terms of, of that. But here's the two stories that we can, we can uh, illuminate it with. The first is China double faults. Um, and that is the, the uh, fact that uh, Peng Shu, uh, and I probably messed up her last name, is she's a China, Chinese tennis star and she, uh, uh, she's won at the Olympics, uh, won a Grand Slam doubles at Wimbledon, I think won the French Open in doubles at one point as well. So not, you know, not top of the uh, singles chart, but a very well-known and excellent tennis star and someone who's been a star for, for many years, uh, very famous in China. And she came out a few weeks ago and said that a former vice premier had sexually assaulted her. Now, you know, that's news. Well, <laughs> it was news uh, a lot of places all over the world, but it was not news in China. In fact, her social media posting was very quickly banned, shut down. You couldn't get to it. And then, of course, you couldn't get to anything having to do with her. And this went on for a couple of weeks, almost three. And all of a sudden, the Women's Tennis Association, which is an international group, said, uh, wait a second. Well, well I, I should back up. 
first, after there were several people who said, hey, where, where is she? Where's Peng? Uh, you had China's news services talking about an email that she had sent to the head of the <clears throat> International Olympic Committee. And in this email, um, she said, oh, don't, you know, don't worry. You know, I'm, I'm fine <laughs> or whatever. Well, it was pretty obvious that this email was fabricated. I'm, I'm forgetting now what the, the one little element of it that was so obvious, but it, it just, um, it didn't fool anybody. And of course, the head of the IOC immediately goes, come on, this is ridiculous. And now I'm, now I'm really, really concerned. And then the Women's Tennis Association comes out and says, um, and, and their, their chair, Steve Simon, uh, who deserves a round of applause as well as the whole group does, basically said, we are willing to pull out of China and potentially lose hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue over the safety of this tennis player. We are not going to trade dealing with a regime that kills and disappears people. And, and when we say disappears, you know, this is kind of a modern world. Disappears means something between dragged off the street in the middle of the night and roughed up and thrown in jail or put under house arrest or maybe murdered. None of those are the sorts of things you're hoping is going to happen. And, and so they're, they're really serious, like governments that disappear people are not good governments. And it just seems to me like this is a real problem. So, so they send around this phony email. So it wasn't enough that somebody says something. We as a tyrannical you know, Nazi-like regime are going to clamp down on them. Now we're going to gaslight the whole world because you know that, the, the you know, it's not like the Chinese media just says, hey, let's do this. We'll just make it up and not tell anyone. They're instructed to say that. So now they're gaslighting the whole world. Finally, someone calls them on it. It's not the NBA. It's not really the U.S., you know, government. It's the Women's Tennis Association that's got the real muscle here in the world. And they say, we're not putting up with it. All of a sudden, and I think it's because in 10 weeks, we've got the Olympics in Beijing. In February, the Olympics begin in Beijing. And much of the world, are they going? Are they not going? And, uh, and so here's this country in which you could be disappeared just like that. Um, and a bunch of athletes are supposed to go and compete in the in the wonderful freedom of uh, no freedom whatsoever. So this is it's an important story. And it's an important story because it's just a little thing, but it shows the sort of government that China is. And it's not just like other governments. Look, I could just read you chapter and verse of how many terrible, rotten things the United States government has done. I do not wake up in the morning and think, America, you know, I don't wake up singing America the Beautiful and thinking we are exceptional people who've never made any mistake. I mean, come on, but, but this is a place in which if you say the wrong thing, you may never be heard from again. This is a totalitarianism of such deadly seriousness that we have to remember it. And I try, anytime I'm reading anything about China and especially about the US, the rivalry, the competition, the, this is not about rivalry and competition. This isn't trying to, you know, make better watches than the Swiss or trying to, you know, make better TVs or cars than the Japanese. This is about genocide. This is a country that it seems pretty clearly proven has taken all kinds of people, Falun Gong, who, you know, spiritual people who, you know, live a very clean life. And they didn't, they, they didn't like the fact that maybe they had allegiance to that religion more than to big brother, you know, Xi Jinping. And they've been devastated and arrested and imprisoned and their organs sold. Sometimes they don't make it off the table when they're pulling out their liver or whatever it is. Of course, you don't make it oftentimes. This is a regime that, you know, it's just so terrible. 
And almost always when you're reading an article, that's not going to be said. There's not going to be anything in it that says this is who we're talking about. And in fact, it's often going to be even the stuff they're doing now is going to be hidden in language that is diplomatic and official and bull. And I think we have to read these things and step back and say, we're talking about a totalitarian regime and not, not that, look, there've been a lot of evil, vicious, terrible regimes throughout history. And the word totalitarian isn't magic, although I think it fits, really fits here. But when you think of the kind of destruction that can happen, one of the reasons the Nazis were so frightening is because Germany was the best educated and one of the richest, smartest countries in the world. This was a strong, powerful country that could wreak havoc, and they did. And Japan was the same way. This, it wasn't that you were scared of Japan because they're so rotten and nasty and terrible. The Imperial Japanese were terrible, just like a lot of people have been terrible. But they were powerful. They were smart. They had powerful weapons. And when I look at the Cold War with Russia and the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was never that sort of powerful. They were a little incompetent, frankly. And China is not incompetent. Now, I'm sure they have levels of incompetence because they have a system that kind of rewards, protects certain levels of incompetence and encourages people to say, yes, whatever you wanted me to say, I'll say. And that's not good for society. And that's not the way you fix problems and win economic battles or win military battles or so on and so on. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say, oh, they're so powerful, no one could ever take them on. I'm pointing out that there's a heck of a difference between the type of power that China brings to the table or that Germany in the 1930s and 40s brought to the table and just some crazy, you know, Pol Pot killed a lot of Cambodians. He was not much of a threat to anybody outside of Cambodia because he didn't have, you know, he didn't have two sticks and a, and a rock to be able to, to build a military. China, so often we talk about what's going on in the South China Sea and so on. Another thing that doesn't get said is that this is the most massive, I heard on a, a, a podcast the other day, that the, the military buildup in the last 20 years by the Chinazis is the biggest military buildup in the history of mankind. Now, you know, how you scale it in, you know, 4,000 BC, I don't know. But but frankly, it is a gigantic military buildup. And where are those stories in the paper? I mean, I read everything I can get my hands on on the subject. And they're just in the last few years, there's not been much. It's almost all very recent stuff that's talking about a buildup over 20 years. So this is, you know, this is why I'm very concerned about China, because they believe in a system that is antithetical to freedom, to free speech, to the type of world we want to live in. And I think there is a lot of sympathy for their, their vision of government in the West, among government. <laughs> and I think there is zero sympathy for their system in the West among regular people. And I think there is zero sympathy for their system among regular people in Asia and in Europe and anywhere else where they get to think about it very much. So it's, that's why it's just so important that we not lose sight of, you know, hey, let's, you know, this is, it's just a different system. It's not just a different system. China has uh, some strong interests in wanting to control how we talk publicly in America and in the West. And one of the things that they've offered to do, for instance, is to set up new systems of, uh, of vetting what people say online. There have been several offers from China that, oh, yeah, we can do this. We can do this better than you can. Uh, and one of their uh, promotional items has been curbing online speech 
which they do rigorously in their country. Uh, they, yes. Lots of sites are not available unless you work around them through VPNs. And uh, so it requires the citizens of China, the subject of China, to uh, go to some lengths to see things in the West unfiltered by China. You yeah. talked on Friday in a piece called Somebody to Squelch about your most recent uh, run-in with the uh, social media censors. In fact, if yes. they can be called that, they are so incompetently stupid that it's hard to call them censors. It's interesting because I know uh, so many of the podcasters and um, YouTubers that I listen to that talk about China, for instance, they are always talking about how they're being demonetized and, you know, just the trouble they're having with YouTube. And, uh, uh, and, and I find that there are also people on YouTube who are shills basically for the CCP, for the China government and Westerners who will, oh, it's wonderful. It's just like the U.S., except maybe a little smarter and how they, you know, and how they tell people exactly what to do all the time. And, and, uh, and they're never complaining about being demonetized ever. Um, and there is, uh, I think, a certain... Uh, there's a certain propensity for any of these social media outlets from YouTube to Facebook to what, what have you to, you know, they're going to hear more from big government and want to do what big government wants more than one customer, especially when they're dealing with billions of people all over the world. And, and so it, there's already going to be that kind of propensity to do what the powerful want instead of what the less powerful want, because everybody wants to get richer and more powerful, not less powerful and poorer. And so there's that natural tendency. And then, of course, you have in the U.S. the, the government constantly trying to yank these people around. You also have the government constantly writing big checks to these folks from different things they do with the military or some part of the deep intricate uh, state. And, and so here's what happened to me. And it's, it's such a minor thing on the one hand, but again, it sort of speaks to the completely insane, ridiculous and speech squelching society that we are beginning to reside in. I'm part of a group, and we've talked about it on this podcast, the Punjab Referendum Commission. A friend of mine and uh, my foundation, Citizens in Charge Foundation, we work on pro-democracy, direct democracy around the world, especially in the United States, but also get involved in stuff around the world. And we want to help groups that are looking to use democracy to show support for their self-determination, as opposed to using, I don't know, like in, you know, fires, bombs, violence, assassinations, stuff like that. We think democracy is the better route. And so we're willing to help people. Now we don't take a position on whether you should vote yes or no, because you can't be the referee and be on one side of the, of the game. But we put together this commission, five people from Europe, United States, that agreed to help the Sikhs for Justice do a referendum about Punjab. And Punjab is a region of India, a Punjab region in Pakistan. Oh, it's uh, northwestern uh, India. Yes, northwestern India. And, and basically in 1984, there was a, a radical Sikh who took over part of the Golden Temple. It's a very uh, religious and, and sacred site for Sikhs. <clears throat> and they did not want anything to mess up that site. The Indian government was not really willing to wait around and decided to go in and take this guy out. They went in, they took him out. They destroyed some of some parts of that sacred site. And uh, several months later, two Sikh bodyguards of Indira Gandhi assassinated Indira Gandhi. And after that, there were months and months of a program uh, basically killing thousands of Sikhs in riots that 
were not, do not appear to be, have been so spontaneous, but appear to be kind of official riots to go kill people. Um, so blood all over the place, as is the case in so many places, blood all over the place, blood feud, you killed my brother, you killed my mother. Um, and so what do you do? Well, you can throw your hands up or you can say, maybe there's some democratic way that people could say, hey, we want to be separate. We want to be this. We want. And and of course, there are times where the UN can recognize that and other countries and it can lead to some change. We hope we don't believe we have any magic wand, obviously, but we try to help. So uh, the first so the Sikhs are trying to hold these around the world. They can't hold them in Punjab. In fact, if you wear a T-shirt that said Punjab referendum, you were arrested. And there were people who did and they were arrested and imprisoned. So uh, India has sort of the same sort of national security law that China has, um, probably not as, as uh, efficiently enforced. Um, but if you say something bad about India or the leaders, or you want to separate from India when they don't want you to, that's a crime. And so this is a, you know, it's a, it's a volatile, uh, controversial uh, uh, situation. And so anyway, they, they're holding these referendums around the world. Uh, we agreed to come, you know, view the one and, and, you know, give them advice, view how it's monitor, how it's conducted, and then write a report to say, you know, what was done right, what could have been done better, you know, our basic thoughts on it. And, and uh, it's good for them because it gives them some credibility. And it also allows them to have somebody kind of watch what they're doing. So, you know, sometimes you can think, oh, this would be fine. We all think it's fine. Well, let someone who has a more objective viewpoint decide that. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I posted something on Facebook, which was basically looking forward to this thing happening at an official government building right near parliament in downtown London, uh, as if that matters. And, uh, and, you know, said, hope this, you know, I'm excited about being a part of this and helping facilitate it and, and so on. And that sat there for literally three or four weeks. And I noticed on, on Wednesday that I had a little thing on my Facebook that said account restricted. And so I hadn't noticed any problems in my account. So I clicked on that and it brings up that I can't, for 30 days, I can't go live, which is a thing where you go live on Facebook. I've never done it. And I don't really intend to do it. I mean, I, someday maybe, uh, <laughs> And, and so, but for 30 days, I can't do that. And for 30 days, I can't advertise. And I do have groups that have advertised and they're not restricted, but I personally have never advertised. Um, so, I mean, what am I, you know, here's a picture of, of the, the hike I took, you know, over the weekend, I'm going to, I'm going to pay money to send it to people. <laughs> Come on. Anyway, anyway, but this is the, the fierce punishment. I'm, I'm just trying to get my wits about me. Anyway, completely silly, completely ridiculous. But wait a second. My account, why? Why is my account restricted? Well, I didn't follow their community standards. Now, they haven't told me which community standards I didn't follow. They haven't told me how what I did didn't follow them. They, I know the, the post, I look at it, I think, you know, look, even Indira Gandhi's family couldn't be upset. I mean, I'm not involved in this fight. This is all about an election being held in London that, anyway, it's, it's, it's not as if this is some close call or anything. It's completely ridiculous. And there's also no way I've sent various messages. I think I've sent three different messages to Facebook in every way I could find to say, hey, you've done this to my account. I'd like to know why. And I want you to cease and desist right now, because I think you're violating the agreement you made with me. I mean, if you're going to make money off of my being on your site, you can't change the rules all the time and be completely capricious and obnoxious. And, and so, you know, please, whoever's doing a class action lawsuit, count me in. Um, so 
here, here we are. I think it's obvious why it's been, why my account's been restricted in the silly way that it's been restricted. It's because somebody, the Indian government, somebody else, who knows, some individual who came across it, who doesn't like that the Sikhs held this thing, wants to complain, and they complain. And so then they're going to shut that down. And, and let's say they do this to a whole bunch of people. You know, some of me personally, it's not going to change. I'm not going to, I mean, at a certain point, I'm going to leave Facebook as soon as, as I I feel like I have other places that I can reach people. Um, I hope Facebook fails. When I, you know, a lot of times I don't like this soda, I like this soda, but I don't really want the other soda to fail. I hope they do just fine. Other people may like it. But when I leave Facebook, I'm gonna hope that it fails and that when all the people aren't there on the weekend, the building crumbles. You know what I mean? I hope, and I hope the people who have stock are like going, look, I'll do any job. I've lost my entire fortune. And I'll say, oh, I feel terrible for you. I'm sure we can find you something. <laughs> so, um, so this is, this is, this is both um, and I think in some ways it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. Everybody, of course, everybody's been slapped with this thing or that thing, but this is politically aimed and it's politically aimed at not saying anything controversial, at hold the status quo, at salute the king and the queen, bend your knee, do whatever, don't bring up anything controversial, and that is, that makes Facebook the elite establishment guard. That makes Facebook not part of anything beautiful where the people get to talk to each other and communicate. It makes it a trick, a trick on us to get our information and get us talking in a forum they can control. And that's wrong. That's why, is it illegal? We can take them to court and sue them? I hope, I hope so. I hope it is illegal. I'm not an attorney. I don't know that it is. I, I'm just, let me, let me hope that it is illegal. But let's say that it's perfectly legal. It's wrong. And good people ought to be just livid that this sort of operation can make money can be in our country and make money. And what they're doing is not just bad for customers, it's wrong and evil. And evil maybe is too strong a word. Maybe it's just, they're just lazy. They just wanna do whatever's easiest for the, and, and so oh, we're in bed with the government and we're in, in bed with the powerful and we'll sell your information 62 different ways and we'll clamp down on speech however we feel like. But even that level of we'll do what's good for us and the world be damned has an element of evil to it, has an element of I so don't care about whether people live and are happy and free that, I mean, this is, this is our world. And it's just, you think about, it seemed like we had this internet and these social media, and we could get together, and the Arab Spring, remember the Arab Spring? And, you know, we're still funding Egypt to tune billions every year to basically put down the Arab Spring that we had talked about. And of course, maybe that Arab Spring wasn't so great either. But in other words, this, this whole idea that the internet and that social media would allow regular folks to communicate and to change the world in a positive way. Well, it could be, but not if every place that we communicate, every platform we stand on is controlled by the elite and the government and people in bed with the government and being funded by the government. This is a, this is a pitiful situation. And I, look, I, I bitch about this every week. 
is not because they put a little stupid, which only their, their note says, only you can see this. It's like, come on, you're, we're passing secret notes now, um, but they're a little account restricted. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't bother me so much. And of course, I'm not, I'm not doing anything that's restricting me. So I can do it, you know, I can do whatever I want on Facebook. But the thought of it is just a, a welcome reminder that we live in a society that is on the edge. And we got to pull it back. Yeah, I agree with that. That's kind of a lame response to your eloquent statement, but... Uh... Uh, but, I take uh, agreement any any time, any place I can get it. It just reminds me, though, of this of one weird fact about the origin of Facebook. It was the day Facebook was founded officially is the same day that DARPA's uh, was it Log Life Life Log project was was ended. So Life Log was a DARPA. That's the uh, what is that the Defense Agency? No, the Defense Advanced. Research Project Agency, right? That's a member DARPA. Uh, it's the most, one of the most interesting organizations in government. They're the ones, for instance, who funded Moderna in the uh, gain-of-function uh, research in Wuhan. So DARPA has been behind the, the current plague somehow. We don't know exactly how, because for some reason, secret agencies don't tell us much. But anyway, that, that we're now getting into slightly conspiracy territory, but we are with Facebook too, because on the same day that Facebook was founded officially is the day that DARPA ended its LifeLog project, which was intended to amass, as, as it says here, uh, personal browsing and viewing habits of American citizens. That's what LifeLog was all about. It was ended on the day that uh, Facebook officially uh, started. So it just seems like maybe there's a connection. I don't know <laughs> if that's the case, uh, but it's but uh, people willingly gave up a lot of their privacy when they went on these several major uh, social media outfits. We all have, and uh, I don't know if that's a good thing because that gave and, them a and, lot of power. It gave those organizations lots of power. <laughs> yes, although it seems to me that a lot of, I mean. None of us said this information can be shared with the with the federal government, um, and so much of that was and and with the uh, with all the telecommunications folks, Verizon and ATT and so on, all of them had to get Congress to pass a special thing after the fact to say it was okay for you to violate the rights of your customers. That's this the the Congress that is always watching out for us was not watching out for us. They were watching out for the companies that they worked with to violate our rights. So it was a corporate government agreement to violate our rights. That's not how it was, you know, played up in the, in the press. It wasn't played up much at all. And, and this is, doesn't matter Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter left wing, right wing media. You rarely hear anything about this. And that sort of collaboration, um, collaboration sounds too nice a word. What was the word they kept using with the Russian thing? Uh, it wasn't collaborate, it was a C word. What was the word? Uh, yeah, all I'm thinking of as collaborator because that was a term used in, in Vichy France, right? Collusion. I guess it was collusion. That oh, they kept well, that was for the recent Russian thing. Yeah, collusion. You know, that's what they're doing. And they're doing it to violate our First Amendment and our Fourth Amendment. And that's not okay. That's not okay for the government to do that. And it's not okay for private businesses to do it. And, and you know, maybe we're too rich and fat and happy to worry about it. But if you're rich, fat and happy and not worried about it, you're not listening to my podcast. And if you are listening to my podcast, you care about doing something about it. And so much of what we have to do is continue to remind people about the basic facts. It can't be a good thing to live in a society where you have a government source, one source telling you what you can or cannot say about medicine, about arts and music, about sports, about politics, about any of those subjects. It cannot be a good thing and it's not a good thing. Or when we talk about China, let's remember that's the same China that is has two million Uyghurs in concentration camps and is committing a genocide. Just basic facts like that are are extremely helpful to uh, to remind your friends and neighbors. 
Well, on that happy note, <laughs> we can uh, remind people to uh, go to thisiscommonsense.org where you write five days a week and we put up these podcasts on the weekends. Uh, it's hosted on SoundCloud. The podcast, audio podcast, can be got from most podcatchers and uh, the video is usually on Rumble. I've been switching off between Rumble and YouTube recently. YouTube is just simply not reliable anymore for the reasons you just described. They've squelched one of our videos and uh, the idea of Tempting them to squelch another one is really hard. I don't. I don't. I'll probably put this just on Rumble. You know. Uh, you know, Tim. It, it dawned on me um, that it may have been that we mentioned uh, the Punjab referendum, or that we mentioned something about Taiwan, which we often do, of course. Uh, but that may have been what caused, because I think it was the one we did where we, where I was in London, that we had the problem. I, I, um, I think that's right. I actually have anyway, no idea. Um, who knows? My, my memory is now so, it evaporates so fast. Um, I can remember where I put my socks, but not where I put my keys. <laughs> and uh, that's about, that's the level we're at. So I'm 50-50 on near-term memory. And when it comes to long-term memory, I'll remember things 30 years ago, but I'm not sure, you know, which podcast. What? I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to. Yeah. Yeah. There's a good reason the for an archive, and I hope they don't get rid of our archive, though everything's still on my computer. So there's that. Good. 